Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Scott Buckler. Welcome to Forum Seeger of LifeBit, uh, to our Precision Medicine Forum podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about what the podcast is going to be about. Every fortnight, we will be delivering a podcast that looks at the role of precision medicine within healthcare and tackling disease and prevention. Over these weeks, we'll be exploring the range of professionals working in this area, practitioners and industry to look at their role in supporting precision medicine. And that brings me on to our first guest of the podcast, who's Forben Seeger of LifeBit. LifeBit are a database company that work in the genomic sector and are doing some great work across the UK and the Nordic regions and supported Precision Medicine Forum in our recent conference in sweden i'm not going to do the talking today i'm going to let forben seeger tell us a little bit about lifebit forben what does lifebit do first of all great to be here and lifebit is a software company in the precision medicine space and what we're trying to achieve is that access to biomedical data uh, that can help save lives um, is never a hurdle again um, for scientists, for clinicians, um, and for everybody in the precision medicine space. So we have unique technology that connects data from around the world that is very, very sensitive data, but highly valuable data, and enables uh, the secure access to this data in situ so that the, you know great data cohorts in the world can be used to understand diseases better, to identify biomarker, develop new drug targets um, to earlier and more precise diagnosis as well as choose the right care for patients. You've come a long way in quite a short space of time in terms of life bits evolving over the last few years. Tell us about the initial beginning of LifeBit and, and some of the work you've done in this period of time. So LifeBit was founded by two, uh, I like to say superstar scientists in, in this field, um, actually co-creators of NextFlow uh, for the bioinformaticians, maybe listening, that's pretty much like a standard language of you know how bioinformatic algorithms are expressed and you know made cloud native so that more people can use these kind of things in a, in a standardized way. And the original genesis of the firm was to democratize access to the kind of analytics uh, that bioinformatics offers and make that easier for scientists but um, when the company was started um, uh, four or five years ago uh, very quickly an, another problem became apparent and that is that actually more than democratizing just the analytical tools it is much more important to democratize access to the data and the technology that LifePit has built is a federated analysis architecture um, for which we have patents as well is actually able to bring computation and analysis to where data resides and uh, then make it very easy from there to, to analyze this data. So um, mm. this has very quickly shaped then the strategy for the company um, and uh, where we're able to work with organizations like the UK government and Genomics England, governments around the world, as well as large pharma companies. And well, that story of you know, democratizing access to this kind of data yeah, uh, attract a lot of the glo global top capital as well and uh, to really fuel us here in, in our growth. 
the problem that you've solved, and you say democratising in data uh, to support the work across UK, Europe and, and the wider international world, what was this problem that you solved and why was it so imperative to to solve such a problem as this? So when we look back in time, we call that kind of the era of genomics 1.0. And at that time, uh, you know, genomic data sets were... Yeah, not that many, and they weren't that big. And uh, you would basically have a centralized approach to analyzing this kind of data. So if you wanted to analyze your own genomic data or uh, combine that of several sources, you would put it into a central place. You would hand it to a bioinformatics platform, basically, where you upload it, and then you do an, an analysis there. And it was kind of fine when it wasn't as big of data sets as many of data sets and what has also changed in the meantime is the sensitivity has become front and center um, of the attention also of regulators obviously we've seen the introduction of gdpr not just focused on genomics or clinical data but data protection as a whole in in the, in, in europe and we see similar legislation and um, regulation around around the world that is considers this data way too sensitive to move so because Traditional approaches would see, okay, I take maybe the data, the name out of this data, I anonymize it, and then I move it into such a centralized location. Uh, but the matter of fact is that obviously when you look at your medical records, when you look at your whole DNA, there's probably not a lot of data that is as identifiable or re-identifiable and uh, re-anonymizable <laughs> as, mm. as that kind of data, making it very clear how sensitive that data is. And so that created a situation where this data you know had to be safeguarded absolutely safeguarded but it created lots of silos where the data has to stay in that silo in a certain country within a certain organization you know because they were not able to share it freely as maybe it was possible before mm. and obviously when data is kept in a silo it is very very hard to impossible to access it it's very hard to analyze it in the way you want to do and it's impossible to combine the data of one silo with the data of another silo if you will mm -hmm. and that's in particular a problem because when we look at the world of say cancer that can come in many you know different forms or rare diseases that have it in the name rare it is hard enough to find enough patients of a specific stratifications of a specific type um, for any one disease to uh, run an analysis that has any statistical power any you know statistical relevance and uh, especially when you consider that you know every person has you know billions of letters in their DNA and millions of mutations, and finding the ones that matter for you know why you contract a disease in a worse way than other people, why certain diseases develop in a certain way in your body, you know, why you might be reacting to drugs in a different way, uh, yeah. really shows that you need large-scale uh, cohorts and getting those for particular types of patients has gotten very, very difficult because of the siloing and that's what LifeBits technology overcomes. Going back to something you just mentioned there, the siloing of, of information and the data and, and, and helping uh, alleviate that somewhat. Data and data protection and, and the data that we can access to support, as you said there, for rare diseases, um, rare cancer diseases. Why is this data difficult to mine or explore or find? Why is it that healthcare organisations, whether UK, North America, international or Europe, or well, in particular areas LifeBit have operated, why is it so difficult for this data to be 
accessed? Well, it starts obviously with the sensitivity, right? So mm -hmm. we're looking at a person's medical records, their whole DNA, and uh, I believe most people would rather have their credit card details flying around than that <laughs> data you know, leaking leaking into more malicious uh, actor territory. So uh, th this is just very, very personal, very sensitive data. So that means certain safeguards need to be around that. But further, this data is extremely large. So when you look at a whole genome in its raw form, um, it can amount to up to 300 gigabyte for one individual, so one person. Okay. So when you then look at large cohorts, you know, times 100,000 that, and you are in the dozens and dozens and dozens of petabytes, so that's the millions of gigabyte territory, yeah. where it just becomes extraordinarily hard to handle. It requires huge computational capacity to run very complex algorithms over there. And the third item, why it is so difficult to access this data or analyze this data is when you look at the clinical side of that data, i.e. the medical information, that that is very fragmented and often non-standardized, i.e. the ways to describe um, a person or a person's conditions uh, can be vastly different. And then it becomes very difficult from a, um, uh, from a data science perspective to compare these data sets. And that's, of course, because when we look at healthcare, you know, even within one country, but never mind when we look abroad and across different healthcare systems, the way how clinical data is captured, sometimes in handwritten paper form and yeah. computerized in different programs, in different ways this is captured, um, really um, pre presents a huge hurdle. So the standardization of data, therefore, is actually one of the first challenges that has to be solved. How did you find that data task in the UK? The UK is in many ways at the at the forefront um, when it comes to biomedical data. And, I mean, it's a world leader in genomics, an undisputed world leader, I would say. In the clinical space, however, there's, of course, fragmentation. You know, while we are very proud of having the NHS here in, in this country, um, obviously, under that layer, uh, there are many, many different trusts and many different systems, etc. Mm. And there has been fragmentation. So some of the data that we, we looked at, um, we actually jokingly say it's surprisingly how often people in the NHS die and resurrect and die again, just because you know <laughs> the way you might de describe a person's uh, death date, you know, deceased date, died de uh, death date, uh, died on, etc. You, you see, just uh, the, the way we describe data fields can be so vastly different and harmonizing mm. that to um, common standards is, is absolutely critical. And that's even the case here in the UK. So when you say common standards, you surely must see different standards depending where you are when you're in Europe, um, the work you're doing in Nordic and obviously UK. Are these standards changing a lot and how do you overcome such a standard data? Do you have a generic way of which life bit process data in terms of the fields or our healthcare moving towards an international standard of collecting data? Both, um, luckily. <laughs> so on the one side, we are driving the adoption of uh, standards like OMOP, um, and we do this as part of the Eden Eden organization or the Eden consortium in, in Europe, So, which is a particular type of describing data and more and more countries and healthcare systems and uh, data custodians are adopting this kind of standard. And that obviously makes life for everybody involved a, a lot easier. But at the same time, we as LifeBit, we are connecting data wherever it is, in whichever form it is, in whichever 
infrastructure it is. And obviously the first thing we have to do is to clean it up, to bring it to such a standard and to harmonize it to uh, the, the data that this has to be compared to. And we achieve, achieve this through a data science team that we have ourselves, mm. but it's not just brute force, manual work, you know, that wouldn't be very scalable. But in, instead what LifeBit implements, which each of our large biobank and government clients are so, such um, so-called ETL pipelines. So that stands for extraction, transformation and loading. So that basically you create very small algorithms and pipelines that can turn data from certain sources you know that comes in all kinds of shapes and forms yeah. into such a standardized form in a automatic fashion yep. so the first thing we always do is analyze the data that we see locally in any you know jurisdiction any government that we go into and then build a sustainable and automatic way to produce it in a more standardized way you've got the technology uh, resources should I say, to also do something like that. Is that exclusive to LifeBit or is that something that everyone could do? What is maybe exclusive to LifeBit is that we are able to provide a whole end-to-end -end offering from the data collection in hospitals, the recruitment from uh, patient consent, uh, the ingestion yeah. of this kind of data. Then, of course, the cleaning, as we just discussed, all the way to research insights and, and clinical insights. Mm -hmm. So kind of that end-to-end -end nature, which comes with a number of um, transformational services that we need to offer around the data, around the bioinformatics, around the infrastructure, security, et cetera, et cetera, is maybe something that is somewhat unique to life. But that being said, we're so actively pushing uh, you know, the adoption of standards such as OMOP and doing work in the community because you know that's not work we need to necessarily do. That's uh, you know you know where where data set is captured in OMOP, um, for example, um, it just accelerates the process and then LifeBit doesn't have to do any work. So we are more than you know very much welcoming institutions to adopt these kind of standards because that's not actually our core business. Okay, I'm going to move on to something a bit slightly different actually. So what I want to discuss next, I mean, that is the moral argument around the use of genetic data. Um, we live in a political landscape internationally and a time of sensitivity, whether it's uh, socially or economically, it's something that is uh, handled sensitively when it comes to anything relating to data. You've already touched on some of the stuff you talked about in terms of sharing data and accessing data. When it comes to the use of this data and the way it can support health outcomes, prevention of diseases, especially something as pertinent as cancer, do you see the moral argument that is played out in some cases in terms of how data is shared and used? And how do you kind of address something like the use of patient data from your perspective? I mean, to start with, it is paramount that we use this data as much as we can possibly do, and that's because it works, right? Yeah. So, you know, here in the UK, because of the great work of Genomics England, you know, five times more rare disease patients um, have received an accurate diagnosis. You know, we know as an industry that it's two to two and a half times more likely to get a drug through to um, regulatory approval when it's based on the you know, genetic evidence. And... Um, the understanding of diseases, you know, most notably, or very recently, uh, 
COVID is, is so much deepened where, you know, the data that we help safeguard has, um, f through that data was found five biomarkers, i.e. spelling mistakes in the DNA that make people more likely to have a severe cause of the disease, you know, and what this means in terms of the understanding of COVID, what this means in the understanding of infectious diseases at large is, is obviously um, very, very apparent. So, and there's countless examples of this, why the, the, the power that this data really has to create better treatments, to uh, understand diseases better, to understand each one patient better and give that personal treatment that ultimately heals and, and, and saves these people. Yeah. So in that sense, that that urgency is, is so, so apparent wherever you look. Now, obviously, the moral argument is, as I mentioned before, this data is extraordinarily personal and extraordinarily sensitive. And that's why we welcome approaches um, such as is done here in the UK by Genomics England, who really set the standard for kind of uh, creating a Fort Knox of genomics, a really a safe environment. Uh, and this is now um, referred to as a trusted research environment where that data can be only accessed by people who have a real scientific interest into it, who do that in clear, safeguarded, monitored environments, and where data, more important, most importantly, is not transferred around and not, you know, handed around like candy, mm. uh, because it is so sensitive. And this all together, you know, the right governance, the right policies, and then technology like the one that LifeBit creates that brings computation to where data resides in the hand of a protective force of a you know a government a data custodian um, a data uh, steward if you if you will um, that all combined means that we can do the science and can enable the brightest minds in academia and, and pharmaceutical industry to use this data for breakthroughs but we safeguard it and safeguard it against any uh, malicious intent, any any misuse of data. So it's really at the fine line uh, where we have to focus on and where LifeBit uh, has, has been pioneering technology because to not use that data would be a huge a huge sin and a huge missed opportunity, of course. I have to agree with majority of what you've just said. Obviously, for anybody listening to, to today's podcast who's coming from this without background information on genomics and genetics and is is listening to understand more about precision medicine, well, welcome, first of all. But just to, to help them with that then, Torben, a little bit about when we say the, the moral argument around the use of this data, how I perceive that moral argument and, and others perceive that moral argument may differ. My perspective uh, is coming from the fact that the data will be able to help understand future diseases, infections that may occur, that may be linked to hereditary, um, that may obviously be part of your life moving forward from a child into an adult. And it may also look at being able to define certain things that you cannot do or may be affected by this onset of a particular disease. So is that something that, for instance, a scenario, somebody looking for employment in the future may feel that they are hindered if such a disease was prevalent, they knew about it? Is that something that we see is going to put them in a, a worse position than someone else who doesn't? And is that data then going to be available for people in employment to access? Is that something that people are concerned with? 
Absolutely. People are always concerned with uh, the misuse of their personal data, be that genomic and clinical data or, or otherwise. And the concerns are, you know, uh, you know, need to be listened to. And um, how you address it is through information and explaining how these technology and how these safeguards work and making very clear that you know, in this country and in, in this continent and as well as the European Union um, and ma many governments that we represent around the world, insurance companies, employers do not get access to this kind of data mm. um, in, in, in order to assess, you know, whether policy should be given to an individual or not or whether somebody should be employed or not. But there is an approval process in internationally, it's called IRB, Internal Review Board, Genomics England calls it an access review committee that decides over each and any access application for where a research case needs to be made by a bona fide researcher. So somebody who is in academia, who is in uh, drug discovery, for example, of a pharmaceutical company who have a specific research interest, a life science driven research interest, mm. and um, needs to make that case why that data should be accessed. And uh, streamlined processes for that and strict processes are in fact the bedrock of gaining that public trust and also taking the public with us on that journey in explaining how these things work you know uh, the, the the pitfalls and how they can be mitigated yeah. um, is, is absolutely crucial because you know we need to safeguard against the misuse and that is one that leads to discriminatory behavior against employees or um, you know candidates for insurance policies etc 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 or you know you could even think worse ma weapons manufacturers right yeah uh, these are not the people that or the organization that should get their hand on these um, uh, tr precious data assets but it's the ones to do use it as a force for good who use it in in research and in, in uh, drug development are we moving towards health passports i wouldn't want to speculate <laughs> too, too much in, the, in that direction the one thing i can say is that what we've seen through COVID um, is much more of an adoption of electronic health records. Um, I believe the NHS app is now used by, you know, I think it's in a high 20 million mark, or almost 30 million people that now in this country are using the NHS app. And that's certainly something not, not something that was the case before. And that, of course, means that um, clinical information, um, especially observed over time, you know, is captured, you know, in a more standardized electronic way, which, as we discussed earlier, uh, paves the way for even more exact sciences, more mm. exact, uh, more breakthroughs, because it's a higher quality of data. But it also informs um, a situation where a clinician can uh, get give a, a better diagnosis because they have the patient's records uh, much much easier inside. But you know, that's, that's one area as well where those safeguards need to be in place, right? And access controls, role-based access controls yeah. should be given. So not everybody should have access to all kinds of data at all times. Do you not think, and you saw this during COVID in the UK, Europe, Australia, Melbourne, in areas when we had the COVID passport scenarios where you had to present your current health status, whether you were entering into a restaurant, a bar, a, a live music event, or whatever it may be at the airport, for instance. There was many that obviously obliged and um, felt that that was a, a reasonable thing to ask. And there was a, you know, a, a majority that didn't. Uh, and they reacted in a way that was to demonstrate against uh, something like this. Do you think that, and this is maybe something that's difficult for you to, to answer really, but do you think that there is enough being done 
internationally, and I'm not looking at the UK here, we're a UK-based company working precision medicine across the world, so we're not UK-centric, but do you think there's enough being done to communicate the value of what you're talking about in terms of the genomic benefits. So we've got one in two people diagnosed with cancer in the UK. I don't know what it stands for, for country by country. Uh, I've got friends and family that have recently been diagnosed and, and are dealing with the, the fallout of that. Do you not think that the moral discussion around the use of data would become less sensitive if there was better communication and have you seen pockets of communication that are doing this because personally outside of knowing about genomics england and, and working in this field you don't rarely see that communicated is there enough being done do you feel to to actually make this more understandable for citizens across the world there absolutely needs to be uh, uh done more in in terms of in information and education uh, right maybe even even in schools already you know you, you mm. do mention genomics england they have uh, and you know, not to create any competition uh, you know they have the a wonderful podcast Podcast as well you know, um, by Chris Wigley, yeah. uh, the, uh, the, you know the G word that really aims at educating um, uh, across a number of these these areas, and more podcasts like you know this one here will yeah. help doing doing that and really bringing patient stories out in describing research breakthroughs in a way that a broader um, public can understand. It really showcases um, uh, you know the, the power of this. You know one one example here is uh, Serena Nixinal out of Cambridge University who who only a few weeks ago published the largest um, genomic study ever done over whole genomes for for cancer patients, you know, that is using Genomics England's data. And she, um, she and her team have discovered 58 new mutational signatures. So again, those kind of mm. spelling mistakes that really inform the, the cause of diseases, etc. And what that means for our understanding of cancer, you know, this was published in every major newspaper and, and, and TV station around the world. Um, in, in often written in a way that yes people understand it better and i think that is a critical bit mm. um you know we always observe when it comes to things like consent because of course the patient data that we help secure and analyze is from consented individuals who have given their approval for their data to be used for research um, for their blood samples to be sequenced so we have the whole dna um, and that consent is a obviously critical and that needs to be always uh, be the case so we have their buy-in uh, but you can observe that that consent or willingness to consent skyrockets the moment somebody regrettably contracts a rare disease or cancer or one of their loved ones is um, and that is obviously because out of a sudden people have a personal stake in that and yeah. you know wanting to further science in in that field uh, but also they quickly get informed more a very good friend of mine his, his his child has a rare disease and he's become you know he's from the financial industry but he's become a big expert in that specific disease and running huge excel models where he sees you know which which drug treatment has worked better for 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 his daughter and the, you know the, this kind of that involvement of a parent or a family member or somebody who has a disease them individually shows that quickly can become an expert now not the whole public can become experts obviously but that that is the thing about telling these stories in a bit more comprehensible way in a way that the general public understands the value of this and how they might 
benefit from it right you yeah. know the fact that we could bring a vaccine out so quickly in this country and you know we've enjoyed freedom you know you talked about uh, it since since june last year already way ahead of the rest of europe and most of the world is um is is really a testament to the effectiveness of of, of science of modern drug discovery and drug development vaccine development which is all deeply rooted in data and if you tell these stories more then i think the willingness and the acceptance of this uh, um, rises, but at the same time, we need to understand those concerns and we need to address these concerns continuously. Do you think LifeBit have a role in that then? Many will listen to this or many will look at companies like LifeBit, and I'm not saying that there's thousands and thousands of companies like LifeBit. From what I've known in the short space of time, speaking and meeting yourself and your team and learning about the company, I know that the uniqueness of what you are doing and developing is, is obvious and it's for me, I do see this positive role, and I'm going to go on to that in a, in a little bit why I do see that from a personal point of view. However, you talk about the way that we can communicate effectively, and, and Chris, uh, we've met, he's spoken for us in Sweden, he's a fantastic speaker with great uh, passion for this area, and his podcast, I've listened to snippets, is, is exactly what you're talking about, it, it, it is the right direction. Do you think industry... And, and including yourselves in this do you think they have a role to educate better though do you feel there's a role to be creating more education at a grassroots level whether it's in schools or whether it's within citizens in local communities and regions that you work with do you think there's a role to be played in that and if so uh, is that something you're considering i think everybody in the in this industry can and should do whatever they can so you know me being part of this podcast or uh, our, our ceo maria uh, being part of the genomics england podcast and you know attending events that sometimes have broader audiences and sharing more of these stories and breaking down the need for you know privacy enhancing and very secure technology um it, that, that is absolutely a role that we see for ourselves as well now we don't have that much patient uh, contact ourselves or participants contact themselves um per, per nature of you know us being a technology that is used by those large data custodians and those large governments but where we can you know like this scenario here um, is, is absolutely, I think as a whole mm. industry, we can only benefit from an increased um, acceptance of the use of this data, especially now that we're seeing this data becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So the opportunities are increasing and we need to take the public with us on that journey. Yeah, yeah. I just touched on a little bit just before that, that question where I talked about where my personal uh, passion for this comes and reason why I uh, started to work with Precision Medicine Forum back in the beginning of this year my uh 10 year old nephew has got putz jager syndrome and we found out he had putz jager syndrome about three or four years ago he's uh putz jager syndrome to people who don't know is a is a cancer genetic disorder and it's characterized actually by freckles spots on the lips mouth and fingers and what actually occurs is polyps in the intestines the big thing for putz jager syndrome is that my nephew um, will be at a higher risk of developing cancer in the stomach, colon, rectum um, as he grows older. He only recently went to London to have a, a, a camera to have a look at the polyps to see where they are. Unfortunately, there's none developed as yet um, and he's not having to return for another couple of years now. This is a, a real emotional thing for myself, but for my family, because it's a, a big thing for, for my nephew. But also at the same time, my family have been able to see what the benefit is like of looking at a genetic disorder, but also being able to 
target that from an early onset. My brother uh, had symptoms, they tested, they found it was a genetic uh, hereditary thing and, and they're treating it. So from my perspective, I've actually seen how this plays out and, and seen the benefits of it. So what I wanted to, to, to ask yourself, Torben, is if you're making a case for the use of genomics and genetics to prevent things on the onset as demonstrated with myself and my nephew. What are the key things that our audience should understand about the role of genomics and maybe give us a bit of an insight into what genomics has the possibilities to achieve in this next five to 10 years when it comes to health and disease? First of all, uh, that's uh, a very moving, moving story, and it t ties into what, what I said. You know, when the family around such a un very unfortunate case becomes, you know, almost experts, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, right, mm. and um, deep in that understanding. Yep. But it, what it also shows very strongly is um, this other element of uh, what genomics offers, which is early detection. Yeah, and you know, you, you know, very clearly demonstrated. There are now risks understood for your nephew, very unfortunate risk, but at least they are understood and they are known. Yep. And now um, he can go through those regular checkups and make sure that should anything bad happen, and hopefully, hopefully it doesn't, but should anything bad develop, it can be caught early and treated early. And we all know that the chances of survival are uh, and, and remission, etc., are a lot bigger the, 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 the sooner you start in the case exactly. of cancer, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is something where again I can only praise you know, uh, you know as a British business we, we are really proud to be here in, in the UK because of the effort that the government does on in many areas and as part of the last large budget was um, uh, of, the, of the treasury was the um, uh, funding for the newborn program so that in the UK p consented by the pa uh, parents of course but every newborn uh, will be sequenced and what that enables us to do um, and you know, so this is something genomics england our partner looks looks at uh, is to discover exactly those kind of genetic predispositions to contract certain diseases with a higher likelihood or you know where we know that there is a disorder already so that this kind of monitoring that you mentioned right yeah. uh, starts earlier that there's a diagnosis earlier diagnosis that in the past many families never gotten for their child or their loved ones right so that you have the diagnosis earlier the, through the, the, the detection and then can monitor it closely you can treat it you can contain so many diseases um, uh, now, nowadays with modern medicine and make sure that you know more more children see a happy school life and you know can go on about their lives this is so often in the data and i think that is one of the things where where genomic uh, genomics in the world of precision medicine is really heading is into the standard of care in newborn sequencing at the beginning but also when you have grown-ups who contract a certain disease that now genomics uh, testing whole genome sequencing has become so affordable we actually just heard about the 100 um, dollar whole genome which is a, a huge milestone achieved by, by a new company to lower the cost for the sequencing right so that when an adult contracts a certain disease or cancer that you can do uh, genomics test multi-omic tests so the other parts of the body, you know, the you know how cells work with one another and pathways uh, that you can sequence those um, faster, cheaper, 
and more regularly to have deeper insight into the specific makeup of an individual so that you choose the right drugs for the right individual, that you make the right diagnosis for the right type of cancer and um, accordingly plan the therapeutics um, from there. And seeing that in standard of care, so in everyday care, uh, is has huge promise uh, when it comes to, again, early detection, as we discussed, early diagnosis, as well as more successful treatments right and uh, that means that every doctor you know after coming after such a test should have a genetic report in their hands you know that in, lists the uh, variants i.e. the mutations that an individual might have the spelling mistakes right and yep. uh, interprets it so that the doctor has the tools that they need to um, and the interpretation of that and the prioritization of that to achieve that better diagnosis or more accurate diagnosis and choose the right drugs you know we call that pharmacogenomics uh, choose the right drugs to treat that very individual patient and that highly personalized or fully personalized medicine um, with its huge um, efficacy and uh, is, is the huge promise of, of genomics indeed and not just genomics but multi-omics um, we're very, very excited about that. Forben Seeger, Chief Business Development Officer for LifeBit, thank you very much for your time today. It was absolutely great to be here. Thanks, Scott, and uh, looking forward to, to talking soon. That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.